hello and welcome back to Once More With Feelings, a podcast where we talk about the comic Die and our feelings. I'm Kate. And I'm Christina. And we're here to finish up uh, issue two of Die, which it says a lot about this comic. Now, this is the second issue and we had to make it into a two-parter. Yep, because, oh boy, there's a lot of interpretation that we have with everything that's happening. Both of us are also giant D&D nerds and we keep on talking about how this relates to the games. Yeah, you're not wrong. I love it so much. So since this took so long last time, let's go ahead and just jump right into it, shall we? Sounds good to me. So we open up right after a battle finished on the last page we're on. If you guys are reading the physical comic, we're on the page that's right after the exact center of the comic where the staples are. So Angela got the heading and we marched off to the nearest vertex. So Angela also seems to be a walking Google. I mean, probably, but also it's a little bit like being a ranger or a navigator, somebody who can point you in a direction. And they were saying it all looked like trouble, reality and fantasy hopelessly blurred. One thing I love about this imagery is that the nearest vertex, because the planet they're on is a D20. Yep. So there are literal corners of the planet where you're just going to hit like a real sharp corner mountain. Yep. And that's where they are. So it got us all thinking, is Will's the first to say anything? Before we decide the next move, we need to talk. We play by the old house rules, right? We have no idea how real Die is. So they even call it Die. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the name of the game. So we have to treat it like it's real. If it's fantasy and we treat it like reality, there's no loss. If it's reality and we treat it like fantasy, we become monsters. And Chuck's like, so is this aimed at anyone specifically? I feel like you're talking to me. I feel like you're aiming this at me. <laughs> Yep, but I think Isabel's aiming at someone else and says yes very clearly. I don't know, it might also be aimed at Chuck. Yeah, I feel like Chuck probably pulled some shit that also has kind of made him a douche in the real world. Yeah. It's that same thing we were discussing last time about chaotic stupid. Yeah. The player who is playing the game just for fun and just kind of as like a social thing and not necessarily into the plot itself. Yep. And Kieran in the back even mentions that's what the fool is supposed to be. It's the least emotionally mature character. It's the easy one to play. In a way, yeah. So Chuck even goes in, it's not as if I really want to do bad things anyway. He's like, listen, guys, I don't actually want to do bad stuff. I'll just go along with whatever you want to do. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But Ash chimes in like, says the man who stabbed his childhood crush. <laughs> like, for one thing... Chuck knows that it's not really Maria that he stabbed. Yeah. And it's also not really the elf queen. He thought that she was a fallen, but it, he had no hesitation. There was no moment of like, oh God, this is so difficult. There was no internal battle to do that. He just like straight up went to stabbing. Yeah. Well, I feel like he's also possibly overconfident in his own knowledge, especially now that he's a successful writer with like a film series. He's like, I know how stories work. I know how I do this. Well, specifically, Chuck's work is stories about their times here. Yeah. So he's probably turned this over. He was turning what they experienced here into a narrative. So I think that's probably why he was the quickest to jump back into it, because he's the one who's been living in this setting for the longest, even after they went back. I agree. So here is the bit where I said this is why it's pretty clear to me that Angela chose to give up her arm. Because she says, of course it's real, discussing about whether Die is real or not. I got a cybernetic arm here, and when I came out, I had no arm at all. So it's not just that her arm was cut off when they were leaving. She chose to replace it with a cybernetic arm. 
See, I read it as the game gave her a cybernetic arm because she lost her arm as they were leaving. But it's a cause and effect. I got a cybernetic arm here, and then when I came out, I did not have an arm. It's not, I had no arm there, so when I came here, they gave me a cybernetic one. Yeah, I see that too. I'm pretty sure it's explicitly stating that she chose to get a cybernetic arm, and then when she left die, she didn't have it anymore, so she had no arm. Yeah. So I think she's saying that, like, I'm proof that what happens to us here happens to us in the real world. Exactly. Like, the things that we do here have a direct effect on our lives. Also, here's a little thing that I've sort of noticed, but I don't know if it was intentional or not. Everyone else seems to have visibly aged. Yeah. Everyone else, when, like, we saw them in the real world and they came in back and to die, their physical appearance, their faces and everything looks the same, and they look different than they did when we first were introduced to them as kids. Except for Ash. Yeah, Ash does still look young and beautiful. Exactly the same. Mm-hmm. But that could be because his character avatar wasn't 100% based on how he looked. That's fair. So, like, it wasn't based on his appearance, so it's more static. Yeah, that's one idea. Because his idea of how his character looked hasn't changed because it was never based on him. That could be a really good interpretation. Another possible interpretation is... That because this is our perception through Ash's narration, we are getting a skewed view of how his character looks. That's also possible. Ash is making himself look a little better, being a little vain without realizing it. Possibly, yeah. But hard to say. So it also comes out that something about this situation, Ash did something to Angela. It's possible that he just views this as it was his fault Angela was here to begin with because he brought her to the party. Yeah. Or something that happened here that was his fault and they can finally talk properly about it because the Gaius is gone. Mm-hmm. But don't have really time for it now. So they say that Soul's domain is in 20. So there's a side of a D20, a 20-sided dice. There is a side that has mm-hmm. the number 20 on it. Yep. Soul, the Grandmaster, is... On the number 20. And if they're starting on the number one, the 20 is on the exact opposite side of the dice. Yeah, so they have to make some choices about the route they're going. They're at a vertex, and we kind of see later that they're at a vertex between 1, 2, 8, 10, and is that 9? I think it's a 7 based on the fact that you kind of get a little map of the vertices on the back of the issue, so I think that's a 7. But that's also going to be different than a traditional D20 then. Maybe it's a spin down. I don't know. So Angela brings up one of the main conflicts they have to worry about. They can only go home if they all want to go home. And Solomon doesn't want them to go. So they're going to figure that out. And Ash doesn't necessarily want them to stop and think about that right now. Yeah, because it's too horrible to think about. But he also wants to start making progress. Mm -hmm. So they have to choose now which direction they're going. This page is beautiful because you get them standing at one vertice and they have four options in front of them and they're saying, which way do we go? And we get to see like two sides look like an ocean and two other sides look like brambles. One side looks like a war zone. Yeah, that's a war zone. That's like barbed wire. Yeah, it's a trench. So we get the idea that each side of Dai is a different fantasy realm mm-hmm. or a different kingdom, however you want to look at it. I would love this as a poster. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Yep. It's also like, which way are we going to go? It's That would make a very good poster. Yeah. So Neo brings up the map of all the different vertices, the world itself, plotting some different potential areas. 
They talk about marching through eternal Prussia, which is most likely the war zone. And they mention clockwork fascists. This probably is like the technological world. Yeah. The technological zone. Yeah, that's probably the closest to Shadowrun, but even worse. Yeah. They also talk about other two options, which is get ships across the seas of Gondol, which is the two other oceans probably that we saw, mm-hmm. and into Angria. I think that's how it's pronounced. Yeah. Hard to say. Or hike across the front. The front, maybe it's the front of the dice. Maybe it's the front in the sense that it is the front of the conflict. It does appear to be the side that is adjacent to Eternal Prussia, if we're assuming Eternal Prussia is the war zone. Well, no, I don't think Eternal Prussia is the war zone. I think the front is the war zone. Okay, that's possible. Because the front lines. So I think that is what that means. Yeah, that would make sense also. So they either say the route through the most civilized lands, or they go through a war zone. Mm -hmm. And in this moment, it seems like at first they're like, all right, well, let's just go to Angria. Like, it's civilized. Everybody we know is there. Let's just go there. But as they're turning to start walking, a voice calls out from one of the sides, Lady Ash. This is where we get some more backstory, which is... Messed up? Messed up. We also learn a little bit more about the knights, which you also learn when you read in the back, which I really like. But so we go to, there's a knight kneeling saying, I'm here to fulfill my duty unto thee. And apparently the past walks up and says, hello. And Ash looks kind of horrified and says, I barely remember him. Sir Lane, I think. We are honored. And we get a little bit of background story. He was... An angry and knight of kisses, joy into power. He was an adventurer. He was an adventurer. And we see them kissing underneath a beautiful tree. As he rode off, he said he would not rest until he had gazed upon my perfection once more. He dared me to use my power to make his words binding. I laughed and did so. Yep. Which, that was a bad idea. Okay, so the way that this presented, this flashback, everything looks idyllic. There is this beautiful man with curly red hair sitting and smiling on a hill. He is a knight of kisses. So if his power works the same as the grief knight's power does, him feeling happy gives him power. Yep. So he's all about joy. And then we cut to, like you said, that little interview underneath a beautiful tree, the willow. Everything is pink and rosy and purple. And clearly they had some kind of like torrid romance. Yep. Ash was blowing him a kiss as they run off. And it seems like this cute, sweet, happy little love story. Like very lighthearted, very light in general. And then you turn the page. And then you turn the page. And it's horrific because the oath, I will not rest until I see you again. That was a bad oath. Because Ash left. Ash left for almost 30 years. Does that also mean he could not sleep before he died? Possibly? Like, he just has to keep walking forever? Because apparently Sir Lane died three years after we met, he says. He died three years after that, but because of the oath, he could not rest. The eternal rest of death was denied to him, and he walked as a shambling zombie for all of those years trying to find her. The only problem being his eyes rotted away before he could do it. Yep. So even so, even though you are before me, I still cannot see you. My oath will never be fulfilled. Like, ooh, ooh, ooh. and there's this horrible image of this guy 
with his face rotted away and maggots crawling around his eye sockets. And he comes to grab Ash by the throat and choke him. Yep, because he did this to him. That Gaius, him making it binding. Him making it binding, the fact that Sir Wayne would not rest until he sees Ash again. Which Ash probably did earlier on in the game when he didn't realize exactly what he was doing. He probably never imagined the consequences of that. He probably didn't even think about this. It's an NPC that comes and goes and you forget about him. Like, it's fun in the moment, but it isn't important to the game. Yeah, the consequences of that don't occur to you. Yeah. So Neo tries to shoot. Angela tries to shoot Sir Lane, but he's a zombie, so that's not how that's going to work. And Isabel calls for the Mourner, who I'm assuming is some kind of, like, death god, perhaps? A god of death? Yeah. Or the transition to death, possibly? Mm-hmm. Which is not necessarily the same thing as, like, a god who kills people. It's more of a god whose domain is death. And I freaking love how the gods are depicted because they're all so different. They are. And in this and the bear earlier... Their appearance pervades the entire page. Mm-hmm. Like the mourner's hair curls up around her and is in the background of the whole page. Even the terrifying scenes with a zombie knight trying to strangle Ash. Yep. And Isabel says, like, give him his sight back. I'll just owe you. Which is, like I said, trading favors for Isabel is just how this works for her. Yeah. And the mourner agrees. For a favor for one so illustrious, I cannot resist. And magical eyes meet mine. I see you, I'm free. Curse your name, Alabaster Princess. Curse your name, Ash. You'll be dead soon enough. You will rot like me. The only sin will be if your corpse does not burn. And then he rots and dies all over her. Just like all of that rot just drips down all over Ash. And you see that she sees all of it happening while she's trying to hold him off. And it's not just rot, though. It's blood and maggots and disgustingness. Like, this entire zombie corpse falls apart above him. It's like the magic sealed a rotting piece of flesh in a Tupperware and all that juice just had time to, like, hang out. I don't want to think about rotting juice, please. Yeah. Like, it's real bad. It's real bad, guys. It's horrific. But then we have Ash lying in the middle of a broken corpse. Like, there are ribs on either side of him. Like, the armor's fallen to pieces. He stands up, like, covered in steaming viscera. Oh, 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 it's so gross. Yep. Everyone comes to this realization because probably everybody understands what just happened. And no one's helping him. I mean, they helped him in the sense that they broke the oath. They, like, let the oath end. Yeah, but no one's helping him out of the viscera. No one's casting prestidigitation. Like, I don't know if they have prestidigitation. They're high enough level or somebody has it. None of them are wizards. Bard? Their magic doesn't work like that, though. Anyway, and so... Yeah, so they decide as a group, without really conferring, but they all sort of get the implications of this, their actions have unintended consequences on this world. The things that they did when they were last here have had time to fester. The meat that they put in that tubware and sat on the counter and forgot about is bad now. And if they go through Angria, who knows what else they're going to find. Yeah. We both play. We both know there's NPCs we've pissed off. We're both DMs. Yes. And we know how to use that to backstab our players. 100%. And that's, in a sense, part of what a good DM does is they make your actions have consequences that you didn't think about because that makes you more invested in the story. Because when something happens, you're like, oh, God, that was my fault. I did that. 
Yeah. And we know Solomon, if anything, was a very talented DM. And now, as the grandmaster of this world, has so much more control over everything that's happening. And has gone kind of crazy. Yes. Just a little bit. Yeah, because he's been left alone for 25 years. So there is a thing, there's a concept that me and some other friends sort of evolved, but I have when it comes to role-playing games in general, not just Dungeons & Dragons. And I call it knife theory. I love knife theory. So the concept of knife theory is that when you are creating a character, you present the person running the game with a certain number of knives, quote unquote. Basically, you're giving them ammunition against you in the game. You're saying, these are things that can hurt me. Or these are things that can drive me to go one direction or another. These are things that you can use to motivate me towards a goal. Yeah, like my main druid flower that's in the game that Christine is DMing. Knives you could use against her are her mother is still alive and in a town and flower thinks she's safe, but who knows? She has a mentor who's a very powerful druid and who knows what could happen to him. There's the fact that flower traditionally has detached herself from the world That could come back and stab her. I'm sure there's even more that I've done. And it's not even just things of like, oh, I could kill your mother. It's things of like something could happen surrounding like your mom. Your mom could do something. Yeah. And that's a person you care about. And so the consequences of that person's actions are something that you care about. My mentor who I trust could decide to sacrifice me for the greater good to stop the evil that's happening in the world. We don't know. Or your mentor could suddenly decide to side with the side of the council that was behind that genocide that you're against. There's a whole bunch there. (laughs) There's a whole bunch there. So in this instance, as you play a game, you also accumulate knives. Your actions accumulate knives. And things like a obligation that you have that you've left behind, that's a knife. An ongoing obligation or a secret or something like that. So Ash has a knife, which was this ongoing obligation to this knight. He did this thing where he was just kind of like, oh, I made this knight stick to this oath when we had like this little whirlwind romance. And it's not even something he thinks about. But that is a knife that can be used to come back and bite him. It is. It definitely is. And it did. Oh, God. It's so much. It straight up did. It did in such a wonderful way. And it did in a way that, yeah, it didn't actively harm or cause damage other than gross. But it forced him into a choice. Yes. This is sort of, in a way, like a low stakes, very disgusting, but low stakes way of making them realize that everything else that they did here, that they left, all the obligations they had, all the people they knew, everyone is a knife. Yep. And there's probably some debts they have. There's probably someone that they might have been attached to. You know Chuck slept with so many people. Yes. And... I wonder how many kids Chuck has on this world. That's a question. That is a question to ask. Like, is that going to be a consequence of their actions here? Yeah. Is that going to be another thing that they have to deal with here? Is he going to have to try to bring a kid back to the real world so he doesn't leave them in this hellhole? Is it going to force Chuck to grow up? There's a lot of questions. And if he grows up, if he actually starts caring about the consequences of his actions here, does that affect his ability to be the fool? Because his power is his carelessness. His power literally comes from his ability to not give a crap about anything that's happening. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot that is set up in this second issue of this comic. There is a lot that is set up and a lot to think about going forward because there's so many things that could have potential consequences and potential implications for the rest of the book, the rest of the story. Yep. And we've made a lot of questions and speculations and predictions 
in this issue that I wonder how many are going to come true. Yeah, we should probably like write these down and be like, Chuck totally has a kid and then see if we're right. (laughs) Yeah, if we're right or not. Put that on your conspiracy wall. Yep. In the back of this issue, there is a rather long letter from the author, from Kieran Gillen. Yeah, it's like, what, three, four pages? And it discusses his thought process behind all of the races, or the classes, I mean to say, in Die, but also the thought process behind assigning them the dice that he did. I am so excited to get my hands on this RPG system. (laughs) I know, it's going to be so good. Like I want to play so many people because I might be jumping ahead, but apparently there's eight different types of knight, and grief knight and joy knight are just two of those types, and I really want to see the other types because I kind of also want to play those. So do we want to sort of go through the different dice and who they correspond to? Yeah, and the fact that Kieran was like, I need to make a pathology for these dice. Some of these actually have history to them. Others, I had to bullshit. But hey, that's writing a story. Yeah. So starting with the D20, we assigned in the first issue, we assigned meaning to these dice. Mm -hmm. And that's what we believed, like, here's what we know these dice to be. Here's possibly what they're associated with and why they're assigned to these characters. Yep. So the D20 is basically spot on with what we thought. Because this is the die that is the one that basically controls the world, like the D20 is the big decision-making die. It's the big, like, can you do this or not die. It looks like the world. It's a reality bender. It's a reality bender. And that is why it's assigned to the quote-unquote wizard class, Yep, which is the master. So Kieran previously worked on Young Avengers, and Young Avengers has a reality bender named Wiccan, who apparently eventually becomes powerful enough to be a god and create his own universe called the Demiurge. And this feels a little bit like Wiccan gone mad. A little bit. Yeah. Originally, it seemed like the master Solomon, when he was just the regular master, was all for leaving with everyone else originally. Yeah. And it's these years that he spent here alone in this world fighting the Grand Master on his own that have changed him. Ooh. What if who we think is Solomon isn't actually Solomon, but either a combination of Solomon and the Grandmaster or the Grandmaster taking Solomon's face? I mean, he has both die. He has both died. So definitely one of them died. One of them died or they're working together. Yeah. It's hard to say. Because the Grandmaster wanted people to come play and Solomon wanted to leave, but now he wants his friends back to play with him. Yeah. And there's a lot of questions like, why? What happened to you, my guy? I'm sure we'll find that out and it'll be just as horrifying. Yep. So the next up is the D20 or the D12. Yep. Sorry, I can't words. The D12 will be our cleric riff. Clerics are always one of those interesting sidesteps. So the D12 apparently is the exact opposite of the D20 when you look at the planes and the vertices. Yes. So the idea is if the D20 represents reality, the D12 represents supernatural things. Everything that's not reality. Yeah. So that's what the cleric is and that's what the gods are. They deal with the other planes of existence that aren't reality. Yes. And I love it. And it's also, as Kieran says, the juxtaposition between God has given me power and I have this power. So either the power is coming from within in the D20 or the power is external in the D12. Mm-hmm. And also talking about what are gods in these games, because in our world, God just kind of hears prayers for miracles, but never really answers them. In D&D, the God's like, I hear your prayer. You get this one D8 of healing. 
Yeah, I totally have the power to just heal you completely, but you only get this today. Now, shoo. You get this a little bit. Yeah. Also, in mythological sense, could you imagine Zeus doing anything if you ask him to, unless it's turn you into a goose to have sex with you? Yeah. There's a lot there. And the interpretation of the god binder and the cleric relationship, the cleric god relationship, his interpretation of it, like I said, I find very interesting. I find it a lot of fun. Yeah. The idea of somebody who does not revere gods, but instead is binding them somehow, their power. It is neat. Yep. We next have the D10, which is Neo. And we talked about how Neo means new. Mm -hmm. And that is in a way why the D10 is used for Neo, because the D10 is apparently the most new of the dice that are used. It is. It was not common until the 1980s. Yeah, you would use something else for a D10, like roll a D20, and then like odds or evens, or just take off the one kind of thing. And there's also the interesting concept, the die isn't a platonic solid, which means that the shape of it's not regular. Yeah. Every other die, the sides are fairly even and regular. Like, no matter how you turn it, it basically looks the same. Mm -hmm. But the D10 is not that way. It isn't. Well, that's also the most common version of a D10. There's also a few different ways to make a D10. Yes. One that looks kind of like a cylinder. Yeah, I've seen that one too, where the sides are more like triangular as opposed to that sort of like funky other shape. Yeah, instead of the closer to a diamond shape or it's almost like a diamond and a top had a weird child. A little bit, yeah. So there's some more discussion about the class Neo itself bringing sort of cyberpunk and technology into fantasy. Again, the way that it seems to be working now is that this is a creation of Fae. This is sort of like a weird cyberpunk, steampunk, whatever punk, Mm -hmm. like technological creation of magic. Like, technology fueled by magic sort of thing. Yeah, and mercenary has to be baked into it. A what? Yeah, he mentions mercenary aspect is hard baked into them because of the fact they need that gold. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Sorry, I was a little confused. I thought you meant like a person, a mercenary was baked into it, but the idea of you have to get this fuel, your batteries, your gold of the fair, yep. in order to keep this going. Which later then brings us to the D8, the one you're most excited for. I don't know most excited, but definitely excited for because it feels, if you guys read DC Comics, this feels a little bit like the different types of Lantern core. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, I like the idea of powering things with different emotions because you have the Joy Knight, the Grief Knight. That means there's also an Anger Knight, which is probably close to a Barbarian. So Kieran specifically calls out Dr. Plutchik. Yeah. And Dr. Plutchik has a wheel of emotions and the emotions, there's eight of them, which corresponds to the eight sides of the D8. I need to look these up to see what these emotions are. Well, I have them for you. Yay! Is one apathy? I want to see an apathy night. No, it's not apathy. If you're going simply with it, because there's a different wheel and there's different like things that spin off of it. But so the emotions are joy, the night of kisses, trust, which is an interesting emotion if you think about it. Mm-hmm. Fear. Okay. Surprise, sadness, disgust. Anger and anticipation. Those are the eight emotions, according to Dr. Plutchik. So I guess the sadness would be our grief night. Yes. A disgust night, huh? Yeah, because all these emotions, when they combine, they create everything else. But like joy brings ecstasy. Trust brings admiration. Fear brings terror. Surprise brings amazement. Sadness brings grief. Disgust brings loathing. Anger brings rage. And anticipation brings vigilance. All of the extreme versions of those emotions are those. 
So that means, I guess, a trust knight would be you need people to admire you and your power comes from how many people admire you and trust you. Your power comes from how you feel. Yeah. So I think that the trust knight gains power from working with people they trust. Because the grief knight doesn't make everybody else sad. The grief knight just makes themselves sad. Yeah. So they have to feel sad. They have to feel grief. The trust knight, I imagine, would feel admiration, has to admire the people they're fighting alongside of, probably. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see how this goes. I can see how all of these things would lead to horrible things. Like, it's not just like the rage knight very clearly could be bad because, like, this person's a rage monster. They're always angry. That's a problem. Yeah. The loathing, the disgust knight hates everyone. That can be bad. Very bad. Grief knight obviously is sad all the time. Mm-hmm. And the terror knight is afraid all the time, probably has to constantly rush into things that they are terrified of. God, that's just... Just constant fear. That would be the literal worst thing. It reminds me of the meme of, you took a perfectly good monkey and you gave it anxiety. <laughs> and you gave it anxiety, yeah. Uh, but the rest of these also could be bad. So the joy knight gets power out of joy, but that could be a thing where they now prioritize feeling happy over literally everything else. They prioritize their joy over everything else, which would make them dicks. Which make them complete assholes to literally everyone else. Yeah. God, that could go so dark. And because of we know this world, it probably will go very dark. So the anticipation night, also constant vigilance, could lead to incredible paranoia. Yeah. You just live your entire life paranoid about the next thing that's going to happen and constantly having to be on alert. And that just wears you down. Well, the more paranoid you are, though, the more powerful you get. Right. But then it's a cycle, I imagine. Oh, God, is Trump a paranoia night? Oh, man. That would explain so much. <laughs> but then there's also the admiration night that we also know just from Kieran Gillen's previous work with Wicked Divine that admiration leads to deification, which is not good. No. Oh. If a trust knight has to admire the people they work with and trust the people they work with in order to be powerful, it could lead to that person literally putting everyone else on a pedestal. And no one likes to be on a pedestal. I have ended relationships because I felt too far up on a pedestal. Yeah, because it just makes them have unrealistic expectations of you. Yeah, and also it'd be real easy for people just to stab that knight in the back. Yeah, they get betrayed a lot probably. Yeah, like, I don't imagine that night lasts very long. And the last one is the surprise night, which <laughs> is interesting because I'm like, how exactly do you make that work? How does the amazement night happen? You just need, like, the most naive person ever. Who just is like, wow, literally about everything. I don't know how you can make that dark. It's just somebody who's going like, whoa, about literally everything. Yeah, just <gasps> look at the stars tonight. That's amazing. Look at how that thing, like, completely just dissolved and rotted all over ash. That's amazing. Oh, gross. I don't imagine this necessarily going dark because it's just going really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably just really annoying. Probably. Huh. But so that's the D8. Those are the different types of night that we can look forward to seeing. Yep. So we got our wizard, cleric, thief, and fighter archetypes, which left me two classes, which are both a riff on bards. Yes. Our first one is The Fool, which is more style than content, gleeful swashbuckler. And so this is for the people that want to have fun, mess around. They don't want to take it seriously. They want to take it more lightly. 
And so it's a class that'd be simpler than the other classes to play, mm-hmm. which you do need that in a game because a lot of times in D&D, you usually have the first time player and you don't want to give them a warlock or a wizard where they have to keep track or a druid, which my first real character I played was a warlock and the second one was a druid. So not the best choices. With Dungeons and Dragons, your abilities scale as you level up. Yeah. So first level of any character is supposed to be easy enough for a first time player to keep track of everything. But almost no one wants to start at first level. No. So a lot of times it's best to give the first time player like a fighter class or something more basic. And this is what that idea is. But it's also just for someone who maybe they don't want to play something serious. Maybe they don't want to play all of the heaviness that comes with a knight or a cleric or like the godbinder. They want to play something where it's, I want to have fun and make jokes and stab things with my sword. And that's what the fool is. There's also a level of role play aspect of it. It's how much you can detach from the meta-ness of the game. Yeah. Because more experienced Dungeons and Dragons players, more experienced tabletop game players will fully immerse themselves in the narrative and will act accordingly as if everything that's happening is real and will play certain ways, even if they're sort of counter goal, because that's how their class dictates. Yes. So they will do things within world. They will do things and make actions to stay within the narrative. Whereas somebody who's new to it might fall out of the narrative. They will fall out of character frequently. And they'll make what would be considered the most numerically smart move instead of the most in-character move. Or they will make a move that doesn't make sense in narrative just because it's fun. We've definitely both, I feel like we've pulled that a couple times. Me more so than you. I can think of one player we regularly play with who routinely does stuff against the party because it is fun. The one that got him kicked out of the party and he had to roll a new character? The one who freaking jumped into a death well because it seemed fun? Oh, yeah. And I lost my staff. The one who steals from literally everyone they see regardless of the consequences of it? Yeah. Warning, if you play that type of character, it's entirely possible the rest of the party will team up on you and force you to roll a new character. That's very possible. (laughs) Because the story demands it. But I like this idea. So the fool gets a D6 and everyone's like, oh, the fool just has a D6. Everyone knows what a D6 does. Everyone gets to use the D6. But the fool gets to write what they want on the D6. The fool gets to cheat, basically. Yep. I'm wondering, can you only write the numbers one through six or can you put like 20 on there? (laughs) That would be really funny. Yeah. I rolled a... 20. You only have six sides. What? And that makes sense because in Dungeons and Dragons, if we're taking sort of that similar context, bards are the only class who can take spells from other classes' spell lists. Every different spellcaster class has different spells they are allowed to use. There is some overlap, but bards can learn anybody's spells. Which is a lot of fun. Yes, because you get to mix it up and do things you shouldn't be able to do. Yeah, you can do really weird combinations. That can be a lot of fun. Our all-bard campaign is a lot of fun that way. It is. Christina's the only one that's a bard-bard. I am all-bard. I am the bardiest of bard. Yeah, we have like a cleric bard, that's me, and a warlock bard, but we like to call Christina the bard-bard. Hello, it is I, (laughs) bard-bard. It's a lot of fun. You do a lot with that, but it's also commonly seen as a joke class or a support class. You're good at doing everything, but you're not great at anything. The bard is, like you said, seen as a joke class a lot of times. It's seen as just fun, silly. But then you have the flip side of that, which is the potential dark side of the bard, if you will. 
Yep. Which is the D4 in die. Which D4 is usually seen as the plainest. It's the simplest. It'll give you the least amount of buff, but you also use it quite a bit in the beginning levels. It's small potatoes in comparison, but it is insidious because usually it's either really easy to do a D4 amount of something to somebody or it's continuous as in it constantly does this much to somebody over time, which compounds on itself. Can we also mention the fact that Kieran considered making the D4 a part of the thief because of the fact that when it's on the ground and you step on it, it hurts real bad. Because of the caltrops thing, it looks like a little caltrop. Yeah, like I'd almost rather walk through a bunch of Legos than a bunch of D4s. Ultimate horror scenario. It's both. Oh, God. It's both Legos and D4s. It's sharp and it's terrible and they're everywhere. And you have no shoes. Oh, no. Yeah, that's right. So the dictator, the D4, is the one who can, by performing their art, they are capable of altering other creatures' emotional states. Mm -hmm. We sort of quoted from this section earlier in our previous episode about this in part one. But you missed the last part of the quote. Yeah, the whole thing of like an artist playing with your emotions, an artist inspiring you to feel a certain way isn't weird, right? No, it is weird. It's unnatural. It's sinister magic. So it's kind of the footloose version of dancing. <laughs> yeah, basically. It's like, no, the fact that someone external to yourself can make you feel a certain way, mm -hmm. it can be very dangerous. Which, I mean, fair. Like, I know there's been certain times when I've needed to stop reading a certain book because I've realized it's starting to affect my emotions. It's starting to make me sad at a time when I can't be sad right now. Right. Or it's giving me nightmares. Because I was reading a series of Vampire Hunter books and I got one really vivid, really awful nightmare. I was like, well, this is going away for a while now. Well, goodbye to this. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So those are the different dice. Those are the different types of class there are in this game. It would be interesting to see if somebody could multi-class. Oh, God. From what I understand, this game's already going to be way complicated. So we'll see. No, I'm all about it. I love complicated games. That's why I love Pathfinder so much, because there were so many stupid rules. I loved it. <laughs> I was like, this is so complicated. And it doesn't need to be. I love it. Yeah. So later this year, once the trade comes out, once we're at issue five of Die, that means I think they're going to be giving us the RPG system that Kieran's been working on. Mm -hmm. Real excited about that. Ooh, that'd be fun if we could do a live stream of it. We'll see. That'd be fun if we can do like a live stream, like one shot or first game. As like a special thing. I don't know. Let us know if you like that. Are you running this game, Kate? I don't know. <laughs> It'd be a fun thing to do. I love this. This podcast is dangerously close to becoming this is a D&D podcast. Just because we can't look at anything without the lens of Dungeons and Dragons. I know, right? But Die especially is very heavily influenced by a lot of tabletop role-playing games. And you could make arguments like there's a lot of Shadowrun that's going to be in this because of the Neo character. Mm -hmm. There's probably a lot of different like mechanics and there's a lot of D6 games, there's a lot of D12 games, things like that, that are probably going to affect the mechanics of this. It's not a rule set that we currently know. Yep. I'm really excited that Kieran's going to be at Emerald City and we might get the chance to ask him some questions at a panel if we can get in line and get lucky. We have so many questions. <laughs> We have so many questions, guys, and we have to choose if it's going to be about Wicked or Die. It's going to be hard. Oh, man. There's so many questions I want to ask him privately. Be like, so I know you can't say everything because it would spoil it, but listen, listen, how do you pronounce a <laughs> Oh, my God. 
That can be something that you ask at the panel. You ask that at the panel. No, I'm not wasting my question on that. Do it, you coward. (laughs) (laughs) So that is die issue number two. So much information that we had to use two episodes to go over it all. Yep. Next week, we'll be going back to Wicked and Divine. The new issue that came out. So in the meantime, if you have anything that you thought we missed about Die issues one or two, if you have any deeper meta thoughts about the game that's going to be coming out or the game that our characters are playing, feel free to send us that information. Yes, you can send us your character concept on Twitter at FeelingsCast, or you could send us your story concept at our email, which is once more with feelingspodcast at gmail.com. Or send us, like, your best D&D moment. We'd love that. Your best D&D moment should definitely go to the Talk D&D to Me podcast, which will one day exist. Yeah, but until it exists, I want to see it. (laughs) Fair. So in the meantime, we hope that you read all these comics and enjoy them. Yep. Do you have a recommendation for something they can use to fill the void, Kate? Last time was Captain Marvel, so let's go with Volume 1, Miss Marvel by G. Willow Wilson. Ooh. I don't think I've recommended that yet, but it's a great series. Unfortunately, Wilson's run on it is coming to an end soon, which I'm sad about, but it's been going for a while. It's about Kamala Khan, who finds out she's an inhuman with shape-shifting abilities, and she's also a giant fangirl, like writes fan fiction about the Avengers fangirl. And she feels awkward and out of place because she's, I think, second generation. Her family was immigrants. She's first-generation American. Yeah. Because her family moved to America, and she's first-generation American. Yeah, she's a Pakistani-American. She's a Muslim-American. It's very well done. Kamala's a very well-written character. I think it captures that feeling of being a teen and feeling, like, really out of place, but still having a lot of things you love and trying to balance it all. It captures that really well. And I love the journey that Kamala goes on. So I recommend checking that out. It's a coming-of-age story with superpowers. Yeah. It's a really good coming-of-age story. It was Marvel's top seller, including digital sales, for a very long time for a reason. Well, thank you for that recommendation. Mm -hmm. We will see you all next time. Bye, Christina. Bye, Kate.